today I wanted to really focus in on the difficult time that uh, everyone in our nation is facing uh, today with this global pandemic of COVID-19. Um, so I know the title of my presentation is rather lofty, Compliant Coding and Billing for Telehealth During COVID-19. Um, I aimed high, but I know there has been so much confusion and mixed messages throughout the entire month of March. Um, so my goal was I hoped that the final publication uh, that just was issued in the Federal Register on April 6th would bring some more clarity, but you know what, things could still be changing up and CMS could still tweak a little bit more for providing guidance in the weeks ahead. So um, that's basically what the premise of this uh, presentation is. Next slide, please. So the disclaimer for current state of law. Um, I wanted to include this because never before has such a highly regulated industry in our country had such drastic regulatory change in such a short amount of time due to the global pandemic known as COVID-19. Uh, every effort has been made to present the current state of telehealth law across the CMS regulatory scheme as of the date of this presentation. The unpublished interim final rule, CMS 1744-IFC, was issued on March 31st, 2020, and was published in the Federal Register on April 6, 2020. This presentation is certainly not exhaustive, nor conclusive, as the breadth of regulatory changes far exceeds the scope of this presentation, and many of these changes have produced significant ambiguities and may continue to do so um, after. This presentation is intended to be valid only during the public health emergency, or the PHE. Next slide, please. I wanted to also include um, a small disclaimer uh, as a consultant. So you heard about my background. Um, so with that in mind, that's the lens that I approached my analysis of reviewing 221 pages that were issued in the CMS-1744-IFC, and I provided the link for you, as well as the 63 pages that were published in the Federal Register and the link for you is there. Uh, I most certainly do not consider myself to be a telehealth expert, but I am a well-seasoned consultant uh, who is very well-versed in pre-COVID-19 telehealth and telemedicine services for Medicare. Um, most importantly, this presentation does not in any way constitute legal advice, but I do work with a sound team of legal professionals and legal counsel at Nexon Pruitt. Next slide. Uh, some of the objectives for this presentation, um, I want us to you know, really uh, gain an understanding of CMS and OIG relaxations and waivers during this PHE. I want us to be able to understand the types of services involved in telehealth and telemedicine. And I want us to be able to walk away understanding how to compliantly document and code and bill 
for telehealth and telemedicine services during this PHE. Uh, it's fundamental to note these issuances, again, are all temporary, and CMS may very well revert back to regulations um, before pre-COVID-19 um, and after the public health emergency status is officially lifted. So I don't believe things will stay this way, um, but you know what? These services are expansive and doing really good things for the Medicare population. But again, you just don't know. Next slide, please. Okay, so CMS relaxations and waivers. Um, relaxations and waivers, there are so many components to it, I cannot address them all in this presentation. Um, but I really wanted to capture on these next slides things that I find important and things that really haven't been um, discussed too much. Um, and so I, I wanted to start with saying that um, CMS has issued the many waivers, which are applicable to all providers without needing to ask for permission. And that's a pretty big statement. CMS has issued many waivers, which are applicable to all providers without needing to ask for permission. But Administrator Seema Varma highlights that while these blanket waivers cover all providers, she does place importance on, quote, if you don't need it, you shouldn't be using it. So at the helm of CMS, she is definitely emphasizing the point that she is um, you know, still committed to preventing any types of fraud, waste, and abuse from occurring during this PHE. CMS also clarified confusion and now allows beneficiaries to stay at home, whether in a nursing home or in an assisted living facility as well, uh, as well as both new or established patients to receive telehealth or telemedicine services. So the month of March was really wrought with so much confusion and mixed messages um, and it, it just really put everybody in a tailspin as to um, where the patients could be and what types of patients they were. So I really think CMS did a great thing by extending the capabilities um, and emphasizing the fact that both new and established types of patients can be receiving these services. During the course of COVID-19, many providers have been working from home. So, right, they're affected as well. They are also self-quarantining. Um, so what do they do? Uh, they still try and provide the continuum of, of care. Um, so again, that put all of us in the billing, coding, compliance world in a tailspin in the month of March. Um, but CMS did come back and clarify that providers do not need to re-enroll and list their home as a practice location. But to bill for services as if they are rendered face-to-face. -face. So that's also huge and a big change. Next slide, please. Um, On the CMS relaxations and waivers. Sorry, thank you. I lost my, pull my place. That's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so the DEA 
um, has also, this is, this one in my mind has really uh, slipped under the radar. That's why I wanted to bring it up here. So the DEA, the Drug, Enforce, Drug Enforcement Agency, has a waiver relaxing prescription requirements for controlled substances performed under telehealth services. Um, that's pretty big. So specifically, the DEA registered providers may prescribe, yes they can, they may prescribe to beneficiaries for whom they have not conducted an in-person medical evaluation based on meeting these three requirements. So this is allowed without an in-person medical eval, they're allowed to if medical necessity for a, le for a legitimate purpose is met. Uh, number two, telecommunications are conducted via audio-visual, real-time, two-way synchronous interactive systems. And number three, if the provider is still acting in accordance with all applicable federal state laws. Um, so that's pretty big. So the providers can't just willy-nilly be prescribing these um, controlled type of substances. Next slide, please. All right, there's another important waiver that involves the modification of Medicare appeals deadlines. I think this is a big one. Um, appeals deadlines in fee-for-service, Medicare Advantage plans, and Part D. Here, uh, they will waive timeliness for requests for additional information to adjudicate the appeal, processing the appeal, even without um, uh, a proper form called the Appointment of Representation or the AOR, um, they can simply just communicate to the patient only. Um, they can also process requests for appeals that don't meet these requirements and these elements that use information that is only available. Uh, they will utilize all flexibilities available in the appeal process as if good cause requirements have been satisfied. Um, so those are really big. The waiver guidance demonstrates yet another reduction in the administrative burden so providers can actually focus on patients during this global pandemic. Providers, however, should, or their personnel, should notify the MACs, the QUICs, OMHA, and or the DAB that they will not meet appeal deadlines due to COVID-19. It's imperative, though, that providers or their personnel do file those appeals once the PHE is lifted. Next slide. And Sonal, can I just double check which slide you are on? Yes, I'm so sorry. Um, it is slide eight. You are, you just moved to slide, slide eight. Sorry about that. Thank you for our attendees for being patient with us. Thank you. Yes, thank you for, thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, regardless, it is critical to note um, that no CMS 1135 waivers can override any state law or regulations which are more restrictive unless the state also waives requirements. So let's not forget that states can be more stringent, okay? Keep in mind that providers should be checking with their state licensing board to verify limitations on their scope of practice during COVID-19. Um, and those patients, you know, may actually be out of state and they will still need care. So please verify the regulations in that state as well. Next slide, please. 
Okay, now HIPAA, HIPAA also jumped on the waiver uh, train. So HIPAA issued a temporary waiver under the Office of Civil Regulation, the OCR. Under this notice, covered healthcare providers will not be subject to the penalties for violations of the HIPAA privacy security breach notification rules for the good faith provision of telehealth during COVID-19 nationwide public health emergency. So this is a very, very limited waiver that only focuses on telehealth. That's it. Everything else HIPAA related is still being enforced. Um, so during the PHE, this waiver applies for all telehealth services and they do not need to be COVID-19 related. So that means patients can come in for just the regular flu and that's, that's fine. Their diagnoses do not need to be COVID-19 related. There's also what is called bad, excuse me, bad faith. Bad faith includes criminal acts, of course, violations of state laws or ethics, um, and the use of something that's really important in telehealth. You should not be using public-facing remote communications. What that means for um, applications on your uh, smartphones or um, on your iPads or laptops, desktops, public facing remote communications include TikTok, Facebook Live, Twitch, or Slack. So those are no-nos and they should not be used. But using non-public facing remote communications are acceptable for the time being, okay? Those examples are FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Google Hangouts, WhatsApp, Zoom, or Skype. Next slide. Uh, something else I thought I would uh, bring to your attention is this is not a relaxation or a waiver, um, accelerated and advanced payment, uh, but it's an expansion um, of this uh, program that was issued to increase cash flow to providers impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So again, this is helping our providers. To qualify for the program, um, providers and or suppliers must submit a request to his or her MAC and meet these requirements. There are four. So before you fill out that request form, make sure you can um, answer these questions. You need to have, uh, number one, billed for Medicare claims within 180 days prior to the date of the provider request form. You must not be in bankruptcy. You must not be under active medical review or program integrity investigation. And number four, you can't have any late or delinquent overpayment. Each MAC will work to review and issue payments within seven calendar days of receiving the request. So again, this is very speedy. You're gonna be getting your payments really quickly. And if you meet these four criteria, you should go ahead and really consider applying to your MAC. Next slide. All right, then there's the OIG. They only issued one waiver, but this is a pretty big one. Um, the OIG has a policy statement that they are cognizant of the PHE and the unique circumstances resulting from the COVID-19 outbreak. The OIG will not subject physicians and other qualified healthcare providers 
to administrative sanctions for reducing or waiving any cost-sharing obligations under the federal health care program, which patients may owe for telehealth services. What that means is pretty big. The Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute of the AKS will not be triggered. So those things will not be triggered if the practitioners satisfy, number one, they want to reduce or you know, waive co-pays or deductibles for telehealth services. And number two, those telehealth services are rendered during COVID-19. So this is huge. It's important to note though, that what the OIG is saying is that providers are not required to waive co-pays and deductibles, but if they do, they're not gonna ding them for it. It's important to note that the OIG will not consider your waiving co-pays and deductibles as inducements, like they would under normal circumstances, right? Um, I always instruct my providers, no, no, you can't waive co-pays in normal times. But for right now, under this waiver, uh, they're not going to penalize you for it. They need a lot more evidence against you um, for trying to gain future referrals inducements. Next slide. Okay, now we can move on to the telehealth definition facts and changes slides that I've developed. Uh, there are so many facts to go through here. Um, so according to CMS in general, telehealth, telemedicine, and related services generally refer to the exchange of medical information from one site to another through electronic communication to improve a patient's health. That's very, very general. To make the definition of telehealth even more clear and to avoid all confusion, um, some more facts need to be included. Um, and I think it should be electronic communications need to be audio-visual, real-time, two-way synchronous interactive systems. So that's a must for the telehealth service. There's no waiver on this critical point. So that's a must um, that has to be done. Remember, there is that temporary limited waiver for HIPAA issued by the OCR that includes the non-public facing apps of FaceTime, Skype, Facebook Messenger Video, Google Hangouts, WhatsApp, and Zoom. So those types of apps are um, fine during this particular time. Uh, important facts about telehealth, um, there are two sites, the distant site and the originating site. So let's start with the distant site. That is where the physician or other qualified healthcare professionals are delivering the service. Um, that's where they're located. So remember, CMS did clarify that providers do not need to update their 855 on paper or in PECOS for rendering services in their own home, unless, of course, it's now become a permanent change for that provider. Next slide. So CMS has also clarified and changed billing. This is huge, so much confusion last month, but they have clarified and changed the billing for the place of service of telehealth claims during the PAG. Now, uh, they do not want you to bill for place of service 02. So no more place of service 02, but they do want you to go ahead and start billing for the place of service where the physician or qualified healthcare professionals 
would normally render services face-to-face. -face. So what that means is their office visits or place of service 11 or inpatient visits for place of service 21 or outpatient visits for place of service 22, et cetera, et cetera. It's where the provider is located. This allows the payment of telehealth services to be temporarily based on the location of the physician as if the patient were being seen in the office, et cetera. So the way they want telehealth services to be designated on the CMS 1500 claim form, it still has to be identified. Um, CMS needs to know the service is a telehealth service. So modifier 95 should now be appended to your service. Are there other modifiers that are required? Yes, um, there are three instances where CMS does say yes. There are three, three other choices. When performed by asynchronous or store and forward technology services <clears throat> for the demonstration project in Alaska and Hawaii, you need to bill with modifier GQ. When it's performed under CA method two, go ahead and bill with modifier GT. And finally, when and if you're performing a service for the diagnosis or treatment of acute stroke, bill with modifier GO. O is an orange. Okay, next slide. Um, the originating site. This is also important. The originating site is where the beneficiary is located during the telehealth service. So for right now, the temporary um, places of service can now finally be at the patient's home. So the CMS 1135 waiver uh, includes this for the pandemic. This also then temporarily waives the rural area requirement that we've been so accustomed to pre-COVID-19. Other originating sites where the patient is located, they can go to the uh, physician or other qualified healthcare professional's office, or they can go to the hospital or to a critical access hospital, the CA, or rural health clinic, the RHC, or the federally qualified health centers, the SQHCs, or hospital-based or CA-based renal dialysis centers, skilled nursing facilities or SNFs, community mental health service, community mental health centers, renal dialysis facilities, and then the homes of those patients with end-stage renal disease or ESRD that are getting those home dialysis treatments. Next slide. Um, telehealth services must be initiated and chosen by the patient. This is a big one. Um, this means that the physician or qualified healthcare professional may market and advertise and tell patients that telehealth services are now being offered. So the patients um, are allowed to choose. They are going to go ahead and pick up the phone and call the office and say, I want to receive telehealth appointments. You know, on Thursday, if you have an opening, please book me for a telehealth service. That is patient initiated. Just because the physician needs to market and advertise does not mean that they are um, initiating. 
okay, but this does mean that the provider is the one who is going to be making the first contact to, to the patient during that telehealth service by that, you know, two-way synchronous call. So telehealth services are now for new and established patients, and they can temporarily use it for not only common office visits, but also mental health counseling and preventive health screenings, as well as more than 80 additional services, um, huge. And some of those include emergency department visits, initial nursing facility and discharge visits, and home visits, which must be provided by a clinician allowed to practice telehealth. Now, in a few slides, I have um, all of the spreadsheets from CMS. Uh, that identify all of the varieties of CPT codes and HIC-6 codes that reflect these 80 plus services. It's wonderful. Okay, uh, telehealth services, again, must also have patient consent. So during this PHE, CMS has allowed verbal consent. This is kind of wonky. Um, how do we obtain verbal consent? Is that allowed? Um, kind of threw us all for a loop, but CMS has allowed it. Um, what you can do um, just for that portion of where the, the patient is verbally consenting, you can record that conversation just for that small snippet. Um, you can also have your MA or your NP serve in the room with you as a witness. If you don't want to record during that small snippet of time, you can have your MA or NP come in the room with you um, to serve as a witness that the patient is saying, yes, I want you to go ahead and perform this telehealth service. You should also be documenting in the telehealth note um, that the patient did consent today with me um, via FaceTime or whichever application that they are using. But, but also be mindful, <clears throat> be, be very mindful that Medicaid is likely to be more stringent, again, and will want to have written consent. So in those circumstances, you're going to need to adjust your workflows to figure out how are you going to get those written consents. Next slide. Okay, so telehealth services are now on an interim basis revised to say that medical decision-making or MDM um, or time can be utilized in documentation. This is huge, this is recent. Um, you have the ability to not apply any documentation of history and or physical exam in the telehealth note. So they've really taken into consideration um, so many physicians um, and organizations um, and medical associations that have really stepped up to the plate for their providers and, you know, had big powwows with CMS, the AMA, um, and disclosed how difficult some of these levels of service, we'll get into that a bit later, but how difficult it is for providers over telehealth to complete um, a full exam on patients via telehealth. Anyway, so this is incredibly new. Um, so MDM or time can be utilized in documentation. So the Medicare rules regarding time include documenting the total time. 
so although start and stop times are not required except for specific instances, I always recommend best practice for compliance across all types of time-based services is to document start and stop times to prevent any allegations, any overpayments to be issued in the future from occurring. So just CYA. Medicare still expects medical necessity is documented to ensure quality and continuity of care. So that medical necessity is a must and that's not going away. We have EMRs like eClinical Works, Epic, and Cerner that have telehealth modules already set up within their systems, and they pop up for you when you are needing to document these types of services. But then there's also a variety of EMRs like Athena that need third-party vendors like Doxy.me, Medici, Teladoc, or Amwell. Um, it's important to know the, the why, the how, and the who with when you develop your protocols for telehealth at your practice. Next slide, please. Okay, so um, when we go back to those time elements that CMS has just now um, said are acceptable, um, we need to take a look at our CPT book uh, for 2020. And I noticed my slide is missing an entire column, but don't worry, I have those facts for you. You can just make some notes. Um, so for the new patient visit um, at the top of the slide for the, uh, not, not, for, for the 99201 through five, those are the new patients for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 and 60. That's according to, uh, the rules and regulations that were about a week ago. Um, but in the Federal Register that was just published on April 6th, um, they included some updates, some tweaks to that particular time for the, for the new patient codes. Um, so there should be another column there, but you can just take some notes. Uh, the level one service for um, new patient is actually 17 minutes of time as a threshold. Level two visits are actually 22 minutes of time as a threshold. Level three is actually 29 minutes of a time threshold. Level four is actually 45 minutes, that's the same. And then level five is actually 67 minutes for the time. For the time. And then down below that, I have the established patient visit. Um, which according to the CPT of 2020, UCR 5, 10, 15, 25, and 40, but according to new guidance that was published on April 6th, those minutes are actually uh, seven minutes as the time threshold for the level one established, 16 minutes of the time threshold for level two, 23 minutes for the level um, three, 40 minutes for the level four and 55 minutes for the level five. So they really do um, have a lot of uh, extensive detail in that federal register that was just published. Um, so Medicare, again, took into consideration the opinions from the Medi Medical Associations regarding the inability for the providers to meet the comprehensive exam requirements that are needed um, for those higher levels of coding, those fours and fives, for new patient visits via telehealth, 
and thus they changed the criteria elements to meet during COVID-19. Next slide. Okay, some of the providers of telehealth. Um, this is important. So the providers of telehealth um, can only be physicians, your nurse practitioners, your physician assistants, your nurse midwives, your CRNAs, your clinical psychologists, your clinical social workers, your registered dietitians, and your nutrition professionals. That's it. CMS, this is kind of important to note here. So CMS also has now allowed physicians to be able to supervise their clinical staff using virtual technologies when appropriate instead of requiring in-person presence. So again, this is only during this pandemic time that they can supervise um, through these virtual technologies. Next slide. Okay, here we are. So this is where it begins, the big spreadsheets from CMS website. Um, they had a big, you know, um, file that I had to download and then copy and paste here. But um, there's quite a few slides here. And on the uh, column to the right, it says status. And so for so many of these, they include the verbiage, temporary addition for the PHE for the COVID-19 pandemic. So like the one at the very top is for radiation treatment management. That's exciting. Um, you know, and then they go on for group psychotherapy. They have some new additions for your ESRD visits. Um, next slide. They have a whole bunch for your uh, psychology testing, um, some behavioral quality analyses. Next slide. Um, they have a lot for your physical therapy, occupational therapy. Um, our DME providers, uh, you can now temporarily do orthotic management and training. Uh, there's prosthetic training. Um, there's so much. Next slide. Let's see. And, and then there's our observation care discharge, the initial OBS care. Um, there is your observation hospital same date. There are your uh, emergency department visits that I mentioned earlier. There's the um, critical care. There's the nursing facility care. Uh, next slide. Um, and then these are all of your home visits, um, either at the assisted living or in the patient's home. Um, even the little babies in the neonate crit uh, care units. Next slide. Even the PEDS patients for critical care. You know, um, it's just exciting that so many providers are able to do this at this time for telehealth. Um, next slide. And there's no changes there. So those were always allowed. Okay, next slide. Okay, so some of the key takeaways for telehealth, um, as we've discussed, so Medicare will pay for the broader circumstances of telehealth services to be delivered. Medicare now allows telehealth services to be paid at the same rate as if the services were performed face-to-face -face where the provider is located. Medicare now allows telehealth services to be performed in all areas of the country and in all settings. 
and Medicare will pay for telehealth services to be performed in any healthcare facility and in the patient's home. Okay, next slide. All right, so there are other types of virtual services during COVID-19. There's something called virtual check-ins. Um, virtual check-ins, these are services that must be initiated and chosen by the patient, again. So this means that the patient, again, has to pick up the phone and say that they would like a virtual check-in. But again, the, the physician and the provider you are allowed to go ahead and market and advertise for these services and tell your patient that you are offering them. Um, the patient does not need to be an established patient during COVID. The virtual check-in cannot be related to an ENM visit within the previous seven days, and it cannot lead to a face-to-face -face visit within the next 24 hours or the first available appointment. Verbal consent, again, is allowed during COVID-19, but I always recommend you should get some written consent, which means you need to adjust your workflows. Um, in this case, coinsurance and deductibles apply. They have not been waived. So for virtual check-ins, let your patients know that coinsurance and deductibles do apply and they cannot be waived. And don't forget that OIG um, doesn't like them to, to be waived if there's no waiver. So. This particular service has no waiver. There are uh, two HCPCS codes here that identify virtual check-in. Um, HCPCS code G2012 uh, is for the brief communication technology-based service, the virtual check-in by a physician or other qualified healthcare professional who can report the ENM services. Okay, and then there's HCPCS code G2010 for remote evaluation of recorded video and or images submitted by an established patient or store and forward, including interpretation with follow-up with the patient within 24 business hours. So it's important to note that these are asynchronous technologies. They're not real-time. The data is recorded, store and forward, transmitted, and interpreted later. Next slide. So some of the key takeaways include they are not limited to rural settings. Again, um, the patient must verbally consent to the service at least once a year. That's something new that I read. Um, so if this is something that you have been performing for a while uh, at, at your practice location, you should be aware that you should be making um, your patient consent to this at least one time per year. Another key takeaway includes that there is a broader range of communication methods here, meaning they don't uh, require the two-way synchronous audio-video communication systems demanded of telehealth. Instead, providers can respond to and communicate with a patient via secure text messaging, some limited audio-video, uh, secure encrypted email, um, or use of a patient portal to communicate. Um, the patient-initiated services. Next slide. Okay, and then uh, a third type of virtual service is the e-visit. Um, e-visits are non-face-to-face -face through an online patient portal. These services, again, must also be initiated and chosen by the patient. Um, again, 
the physician or qualified healthcare professional can market, can advertise, let the patients know that these are new services that they're going to be offering. These services have expanded to also allow established patients in any location now to have these non-face-to-face patient-initiated visits with the provider via the online portal. Here, again, just like the virtual check-in, um, there are coinsurance and deductibles that do apply here. There's no waiver. Um, the practitioners who can independently bill for Medicare E&M services include physicians and nurse practitioners. So for these provider types, you should be billing with CPT codes 99421 and 99423. Uh, these codes reflect online digital evaluation and management service for an established patient for up to seven days, cumulative time during the seven days. There's a further um, description in the CPT code that says that these are time-based by definition. So you should be following best practices on how to document time. Practitioners who may not independently bill for Medicare E&M services include your physical therapist, your occupational therapist, and your speech language pathologist, as well as your clinical psychologist. Uh, so for these types of providers, you want to, you want to use the HCSIS codes G2061 through G2063 that can be reported by these provider types. Um, these codes are defined as qualified non-physician healthcare professional online assessment and management service for an established patient for up to seven days, cumulative time during the seven days. Um, and there is, again, a time extension on the back of that CPT code. So you need to follow best practice and document time. Next slide. Let me have a sip of water. I've been doing a lot of talking. Forgive me. Okay, so the e-visit key takeaways. Um, key takeaway number one would be, uh, again, they are not limited to rural settings. Um, there is no geographic or location restriction. Um, the e-visit must be patient-initiated. Uh, CPT codes for physicians and nurse practitioners include 99421 through 99423. And then for the HCSIS codes G2061, through G2063, um, you will be using that for the non-physician uh, type providers who are your uh, occupational therapist, your physical therapist, your speech language pathologist. Okay, next slide. All right, then we have something called telephone services. Um, there's a lot of changes here. Um, so during COVID, CMS has now allowed for telephone services. Um, they are telephone-only E&M codes for physicians and other qualified healthcare professionals to report on billed claims. These CPT codes include 99441 through 99443 for telephone evaluation and management services by a physician or other qualified healthcare professional who may report E&M services provided to an established patient, parent, or guardian not originating from a related E&M service provided within the previous seven days 
nor leading to an E&M service or procedure within the next 24 hours or soonest available appointment. These are also extended even further to time-based by definition, so follow best practice on documenting time. So, although Medicare still continues to place that status indicator of N for non-covered service, these have never been covered, these have never been payable, but there are now work RVUs assigned at 0.25, 0 0.50, and 0.75 respectively. Um, so they are going ahead and um, allowing these services for uh, a small amount of payment, but they are gonna be paid. So they've also allowed um, during COVID-19 uh, telephone assessments to be reported again by those non-qualified, um, excuse me, for the qualified non-physicians um, who are your LCSWs, your CPs, your OTs, your PTs, your SLPs on billed claims. Um, so they're taking into consideration that group of provider also. So these codes include 98966 through 98968. Uh, for telephone assessment and management service provided by um, those types of providers who are qualified non-physicians uh, to the established patient, parent, or guardian not originating, um, et cetera. And again, this is a time-based code, so you need to make sure that you follow the best practices on documenting time. And just like the previous set of codes, these have never been paid by Medicare. Um, and they continue to place that status indicator of N for non-covered service. Um, but these sets of codes also have work RVUs right now that are assigned at 0.25, 0 0.50, and 0.75 respectively. So although the monetary gain is small, um, at least for this time period, they are extending these services to be paid for Medicare patients. Next slide, please. Okay, so some of the key takeaways here for telephone services. Um, you should be adding modifiers for those therapy providers I listed uh, in private practice. So the GO for your occupational therapist, the GP for your physical therapist, and the GN for your speech language pathologist. Um, there are relaxed enforcements and extensions of code descriptions to include both new and established patients during the COVID-19 PHE. Next slide, please. Okay, so this is um, a little table that Medicare provided about a month ago um, for these types of services um, summarized by Medicare for telemedicine types of services. So there's a nice box of basically everything I just talked about in my presentation so far. Next slide. Okay, there's also something else uh, that CMS says we can continue using. Um, it's called telemonitoring. Um, CMS has stated that clinicians can provide remote physiologic monitoring services to patients with acute or chronic conditions and can be provided for patients with only one disease. An example of this would be monitoring a patient's oxygen stat levels using pulse ox. So you can bill for these remote monitoring devices for measuring and recording temperature, weight, blood pressure, blood glucose, 
pulse oximetry at the patient's home with CPT codes 99453 through 99457. CPT code 99453 represents the setup with patient education. CPT code 99454 represents the delivery of the device with daily recording. CPT code 99457 represents the interactive communication with the patient for the first 20 minutes. It's important to note that these are asynchronous technologies, not real time, and data is recorded, transmitted, and interpreted later. Next slide, please. Okay, now we can move on to the COVID-19 diagnosis. What um, this pandemic is all about is the virus itself, um, as well as testing. So the ICD-10-CM diagnosis for COVID-19 is U07.1, and it has been effective since April 1st, 2020. The CDC moved up the effective date from October 1st and reflects uh, the urgency required in capturing and reporting of this condition. Uh, it's so important that it's the agency's first ever off-cycle update. The facts behind the name of COVID-19 stem from the World Health Organization, WHO, and their classification of its temporary name of 2019 NCOV, which stands for Novel Coronavirus, um, on January 31st, 2020. But they've since changed the name to COVID-19 on February 11th, 2020. Um, COVID-19 testing. Now, we have uh, three uh, HICS-6 codes and a CPT code um, for the testing. HICS-6 code U0001 um, is for a CDC test in real-time diagnostic panel. Uh, which became acceptable for Medicare claims processing on April 1st, 2020, for dates of service on or after February 4th, 2020. And do note, this is a CDC test. So when you bill for that, this has to be a CDC test. There's another HICS-6 code, U0002, um, for the 2019 COV coronavirus SARS, COV-2, um, test for non-CDC, um, which again became acceptable for Medicare claims processing on April 1st, 2020 for dates of service again on or after um, February 4th, 2020. And it's important to note that this is a non-CDC test when you're billing. Uh, the AMA also came out with a CPT code, um, 87365 for infectious disease agent detection by nucleic acid DNA or RNA, severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, corona, corona disease, COVID-19 by amplified probe technique. Um, and it became effective March 13th, and it's for use as the industry standard. Um, what's important to note here is all of these tests can be billed without prior authorization and copays are waived. Next slide, please. Okay, and I just wanted to touch on uh, just, just a few tips for implementing telehealth services. Um, the AMA put out a guide to telemedicine um, about a month ago, it was a while ago, on how to implement um, 
so how to set up a team, um, how to implement it. Um, so you need to be aware that you should really try and appoint some sort of a person on your team to spearhead this. Um, they also recommended policy coding and payment information. So you should really be reviewing your malpractice policy or call your malpractice insurance carrier to guarantee your policy covers services rendered via telehealth. Um, you should be reviewing your payer, your payer matrix and determine which payers reimburse for telehealth and identify individual policy guidelines. You should be ensuring that services rendered adhere to all state laws and regulations too. So call your Department of Insurance, your state departments of health, your state medical associations and see what's applied, what's current. Um, so for your practice implementation guidance, you really need to start with the why. Um, identify what your practice's why is. Identify your technological needs, there are many. Um, identify how your workflow is going to need to change. Identify the facts that your patients need to know about your new services, so you should start marketing. Um, and I always recommend you should be practicing some of these test visits. You don't want to try it out on your patients for the first time. So you should practice by getting your clinical staff involved, you know, FaceTime with them, see if this is working. Um, try it with your kids at home, see if it's working. Um, you don't want to be disappointed. You don't want to have your patients disappointed if it doesn't work the first time that you're trying it. Um, next slide, please. All right, and I just wanted to throw in a slide for an example of good faith effort at the state level. And of course, I wanted to emphasize the state of New York, which has been hit the hardest um, in this pandemic. Um, and this example of good faith really hits home to me because uh, it was directed at the um, health information management professionals, the HIM people. Um, so New York State issued an executive order that directly affects the work of HIM professionals due to COVID. It states, notwithstanding any law or regulation to the contrary, healthcare providers are relieved of record keeping requirements to the extent necessary or uh, healthcare providers to perform tasks as may be necessary to respond to the COVID outbreak, including but not limited to requirements of maintaining medical records that accurately reflect the evaluation and treatment of patients or requirements to assign diagnostic codes or to create or maintain other records for billing purposes. So what that means is this order is an attempt to relieve providers of documentation time for billing purposes and regulatory demands. So again, that patient, patients are over paperwork, right? So um, they really want it uh, to reflect their patient care um, and not focus so much on the uh, documentation. Um, for everything. All right, next slide. Some of my final thoughts. Um, CMS, wow, has really, really opened the doors to expanding telemedicine services because of the COVID-19 public health emergency. Um, I really don't know. It's, it's unclear if these waivers and relaxations may be undone post-COVID-19. Um, so please maintain vigilance on compliance and best practices addressed in this presentation. And remember, these expansions in services are intended to assist the Medicare population in obtaining quality 
and continuum of care while preventing them from contracting a highly contagious infectious disease. Um, at the time of my development of this presentation, there has been globally over 932,000 cases of COVID-19, approaching 400,000 cases in the U.S. Amazing. Um, next slide is all of my resources. Um, lots of stuff from early in March as well. Um, next slide. So that is my presentation. So if anybody has questions or comments, I'm sure we've gone a little over and I know we started a little late. I apologize for technical difficulties, um, but I was happy to provide this uh, information and guidance and I, I hope you find it useful. Thank you so much.